how could a loving God order the killing of men, women, and children in the Old Testament? This is a question that comes up a lot, and I wanted a video that Christians could easily link when skeptics raise this objection. This is that video. Let's get to it. In his book, The God Delusion, the one that made his fellow atheist academic Michael Roos say, it makes me ashamed to be an atheist, I think was the phrase I used. <laughs> Richard Dawkins made the now famous statement, The God of the Old Testament has got to be the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, vindictive, unjust, unforgiving, racist, an ethnic cleanser urging his people on to acts of genocide. All right, Richard. Shots fired. What kind of a Bible passage is Richard Dawkins referring to? Well, in Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18, the children of Israel are told what they are to do to the inhabitants of the land that God has promised to give them. It says, Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now, admittedly, this doesn't sound too much like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but I'm going to show you two things. Number one, how to understand this passage and ones like it in its context. And two, far from this making God bad, why God wouldn't be perfectly good if he didn't give a command like this. But first we need to set the stage by getting an understanding of the nature of internal critiques like the one Richard Dawkins is implying. An internal critique is when you grant that a certain state of affairs is true for the sake of argument. So if we were discussing the Lord of the Rings and wanted to point out that it could be seen as a plot hole, that Frodo and Sam could have just bypassed a lot of the danger in the story by simply allowing those amazing eagles to fly them all the way to Mount Doom and casually dropping the ring in. It would be a violation of the nature of an internal critique for someone to say, yes, but the bigger plot hole is that Mount Doom isn't even real. It's a fictitious creation of J.R.R. Tolkien. This wouldn't be consistent with an internal critique. With an internal critique, you're presuming the truth of the story so that you can see if within the story there are any serious flaws or internal inconsistencies. And as an aside to skeptics in the comments who may make snarky remarks about the fact that I'm using the fictional world of J.R.R. Tolkien to talk about the biblical narrative of the Bible, we do similar things with criminal investigations, historical investigations, and even scientific hypotheses. But to do an internal critique of Tolkien's Middle Earth, we have to sort of put on the clothes of that universe and then see if it makes sense. This is what Dawkins is inviting his readers to do. He doesn't believe in this God, but what he's describing is an internal criticism. If we imagine that the biblical narrative is true, what sort of a God does this look like? And Dawkins is happy to tell you what he thinks that God looks like. But if we're going to do an internal investigation, we've got to find out what is the context of the passages Dawkins is relying on. So what is that context? Well, when God made his covenant with Abram regarding the land that he was going to give to his people, he mentioned that there would be a 400-year waiting period, and he mentioned specifically why. He said, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, 
and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was giving the people of this land 400 years to repent of their sins because of God's great mercy. That's a long time to wait. But surely, you might think, these people weren't doing anything all that bad that they deserve to die. Deuteronomy 12:31 says, You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So they were doing everything God hates. In fact, specifically, they were engaging in child sacrifice to the false god Molech. And in spite of this evil, God still gave them 400 years out of his great mercy to repent of these sins. At this point, you should be asking yourself, why didn't God stop this sooner? Not, why did God bring justice the way that he did? And justice is an important part of this, by the way. You remember how I promised I would show you why not only does this command not make God bad, but it's necessary if God is perfectly good? Well, part of being good is being just. Imagine that Adolf Hitler had not died in World War II, but we actually captured him. But further imagine that instead of bringing some kind of justice, then instead what we did was we just gave him a hug and made him promise not to do something like a Holocaust again. Would this be good? <laughs> of course not. It would be bad. Why would it be bad? It would be bad because it wasn't just. Justice would be good. And if you agree with what I've just said, then you should agree that after 400 years of merciful patience from God, he was just and good to bring a command like this one. I know, I know. What about the innocent children in the land? Remember, this is an internal critique, which means you're putting on the clothes of this world and presuming it all to be true in order to find out if it's consistent. And on the Christian worldview, death is not the end. It's usually at this point that skeptics break from the internal criticism by denying the reality of the afterlife, just like we rejected Tolkien's Mount Doom as a fictional place. But you can't do that in an internal critique. These children who would have likely gone on to be raised to be child-sacrificing idolaters like their parents will now instead wake up in the arms of a loving Savior. And if you think that sounds horrific, again, you're breaking the internal criticism. Now, I actually think that's a pretty sufficient explanation that makes sense of everything in the biblical narrative internally. But it also assumes that what we're seeing is not ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric that exaggerates what's going on, like a coach telling his team to annihilate the opposition in the game. Is that what the Bible's doing? Well, the Bible actually does give us some evidence that it might be doing that. For instance, in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, Paul Copan reveals that Joshua may have used this kind of language when he described his successes. He says, Some might accuse Joshua of being misleading or of getting it wrong. Not at all. He was speaking the language that everyone in his day would have understood. Rather than trying to deceive, Joshua was just saying he had fairly well trounced the enemy. On the one hand, Joshua says, There were no Anakim left in the land. Indeed, they were utterly destroyed in the hill country. Literally, not according to the very same Joshua. In fact, Caleb later asked permission to drive out the Anakites from the hill country. 
Again, Joshua wasn't being deceptive. Given the use of ancient Near Eastern hyperbole, he could say without contradiction that nations remain among you. He went on to warn Israel not to mention, swear by, serve, or bow down to their gods. In the end, whichever way you understand these passages, the central facts still remain. These peoples had engaged in acts as horrific as sacrificing their own children to false gods. God mercifully gave them 400 years to repent. He would not be a good God if he did not ultimately bring justice. When he brought justice, any children that might have died as a result were instantly with God forever. And to deny these facts would be to break the nature of an internal critique. And think about this. If God is so merciful and so loving that he waited 400 years for these wicked people, he's mercifully waiting for you. He doesn't relish your destruction. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance.